0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Karen Dillard, the author of Competing Against Luck, my favorite business book in 2016. We discussed the book, The Concept of Jobs to be Done, and the interesting examples in why companies might be efficient yet make bad decisions in innovation and user choice. Hi, Karen.
1: Hi, good morning.
0: How are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are
0: you? I'm good. You are based 12 hours behind my time, so you're currently 9am in the morning in Boston, right?
1: That's correct.
0: Yes, and I'm talking to Karen Dillon, author of the book Competing Against Luck and contributing editor of Harvard Business Review. And it's great because I finally be able to talk to one of the four authors of the book. I I do know that Professor Clayton Christensen is actually the chief author of this book, but it would be great to actually talk to you about the book Competing Against Luck, which was my favorite business book in 2016. So, but before that, Karen, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career?
1: Well, I was what in America is a very common thing. I was what they call an English major. You basically study literature in college. And that meant I wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do. I just liked reading and I liked writing. And luckily, I found my way to graduate school for journalism. And that was where I realized what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be a journalist of some sort. And from that, I have ended up working at various business magazines and really enjoyed them ultimately as the editor of harvard business review magazine
0: throughout your career what are the interesting career lessons you can share with my audience
1: I think I've thought about this a lot because I now have teenage daughters who are starting to think about their own careers and their own lives ahead. And the advice that I give them is advice that I didn't have specifically, but I think in hindsight, I, I made good choices. One of the key things is when I was younger, I always thought it was important to work for cool companies or you know names that would impress people, things like that. In hindsight, I look back and I think I was very lucky and I would always make choices to work with good people, interesting people. Choosing your colleagues personally, I think, can be far more valuable and important than choosing the company name or the prestige of the company because you learn so much from working with good people, with smart people, with interesting people, with people who see the world differently than you. Those things all, I think, really help develop you professionally and personally in a way that I'm, I'm very grateful that I did. I could have easily tried to only take cool jobs at cool companies instead of working with really great people that that enabled me to grow so much that's one of the big lessons i think i learned
0: how did you end up collaborating with professor clayton christensen on two books i know the first book how will you measure your life because i interviewed james Alworth earlier last year and also competing against luck.
1: I consider myself very lucky to have had those experiences, but the way that they came about was when I was the editor of Harvard Business Review magazine, I was literally just trying to come up with one extra article to fill a double issue that we did every year. And it was going to be coming out around the time of graduation from colleges, universities, everywhere. And I had heard that Professor Christensen had given a speech to the graduating class of Harvard Business School that had really moved people. So I randomly thought, perfect, I'll turn that into like an essay from him to our readers. And I called him, didn't know him, and asked if I could come over and we could figure out how to turn that speech into an essay. That luckily turned out to be a very powerful and substantial thinking on his part. It was the basis of an article called How Will You Measure Your Life that we ran in Harvard Business Review that that was so popular it went viral and then he asked me if I would work on the book that came out of that How Will You Measure Your Life as well and I did and it was a great honor and we are terrific collaborators and he asked me if I would work on a second book with him this one Competing Against Luck and it was of course again my honor and pleasure to do that.
0: That comes to of course the main topic of the day is the book Competing Against Luck the story of innovation and customer choice. I suppose there are four authors, what is the main thesis of the book then?
1: The main thesis of the book is that for really about 20 years, Clayton Christensen has been studying the phenomenon of why is it that really smart companies make bad business choices? The first bad business choice that, he's, that everyone knows him for is they allow themselves to be disrupted. What is it that successful companies don't see the competition coming, don't don't take it seriously enough, and actually sort of run themselves off the cliff, he would say, from allowing themselves to be disrupted. But But it bugged him that he didn't that he knew that that happened but he couldn't answer why it was that companies made bad innovation choices that they didn't get their customers well enough or they couldn't create with certainty their products or services and that they failed so often at innovation and it it connects to the theory of disruption his work because he knew what the established incumbent company would do that on the defense from a a disrupting new entrant into the market. He could predict their behavior very well. But what he couldn't tell you was, how does that disruptor, that that new company, know exactly what product or service they need to create to really appeal to customers and to be sure that their innovation would be successful? so he was trying to answer the question of how do we know how to innovate with surety, with success with success, and to be predictable. And the idea was that companies were looking at the wrong things for so long, well-intended, smart people. And, and until they got to what he calls the causal mechanism, the cause of why people make the choices that they do, they would never be more than sometimes lucky and sometimes not lucky with innovation. They would never be predictably lucky. So the idea was to look at how do we know why customers make the choices that they make.
0: So who are the intended audience of the
1: book? The intended audience is really anyone. I mean, it's leaders of companies. That's always our intended audience. But it's also anyone who's in charge of any form of aspect of innovation in their company and anyone who wants to see their company succeed in innovation. It's not limited just for the one person in R&D or the one person in marketing. It's people who want to deeply understand why their customers are making the choices that they make so that they can better serve those customers and create products and services that will be successful. It's for anybody who wants to understand better and be more successful with innovations, innovation on a predictable basis.
0: So what I've enjoyed in the book was the concept of jobs to be done. And I love using this concept because as a business leader myself, I actually think about how to apply it to think about innovation and customer choice. I want to start off by asking you, can you define what a job means in the context of the book and what does it mean to be jobs to be done?
1: So yes, we were very precise and we intentionally were precise with our definition because we think that's the only way you can successfully innovate with this definition. A job to be done is the progress, that word is key, the progress that someone is looking to make with something they're struggling with in particular circumstances. And both parts of that definition are important. Progress, meaning it's not just a problem that I want to solve. It's I want to be someplace in a better state. I want to improve something. I want to make progress. And the particular circumstances of my struggle are critical to innovate successfully. Otherwise, innovations and ideas will just be too generic. So you have to take into account in what circumstance is this person or this customer or this consumer trying to make progress. And if I understand both parts of that, then I can successfully innovate for them.
0: When you see... Jobs to be done, what does that mean then? That means the, the context of the
1: progress has been made? Yes, the to be done part uh, is maybe a little clunky, clunky, but it's specific. It means it's something that has not been achieved yet. It's something I want to achieve. It's to be done. It is in my future. It's something I'm stro- striving for and struggling with. So the job to be done is just a shorthand of the state they want to be in, what they want to achieve versus where they are now. It's And it's in that gap, the difference between what how things stand now and the progress they want to make that you can find your innovation opportunity
0: i love the start of the book by saying that why you should hire this book in the context (laughs) of the jobs to be done but moving forward what is the relevance of jobs to be done theory to innovation and customer choice then
1: again we think that if you really trying to focus on what job people are trying to accomplish that's so what they're why they're making the choices that they make that you understand deeply, not just what they say, not just what a focus group would tell you, not what your engineers and R&D people think would be cool, but why people are making the choices that they make, you'll be much, much more successful in your innovation because it becomes a filter for what matters and what doesn't matter, what really is behind the decision to choose this product versus that product or no product at all. If you know that, and you're very disciplined about using it as a filter for how you make those decisions for again what matters in your innovation and what doesn't matter you'll stay very focused on the on the customer's job and not focused on making the product cooler or better or different flavors or colors or sizes or options that don't matter to getting the job to be done it's very it's a very useful filter for prioritizing what actually is going to make people make a decision to buy something or not buy it at all.
0: So how does one see where the jobs are? Or the alternative question is to ask you, what are the essential elements that the business owner need to capture in order to figure out the jobs, Then.
1: Well so let's those both answers are important I think so the, uh, looking for jobs is there's no you know it's not an algorithm it's not data you can plug into you have to really figure out how to walk in your customers or prospective customers shoes in some way so you need to understand what they're struggling with that's the key understand what is the struggle and how big is the gap between the struggle and all possible solutions to that struggle so for example companies not in free Frequently come up with a product or service that's you know a little bit better than the competition. That's not a big enough gap between the struggle and the existing solutions. It's, you're not likely to succeed with your innovation. The gap in between the struggle and what's possible for solving it has to be significant enough that those customers will, that will come to you to solve that problem. Otherwise, they'll just stick with whatever they're doing. It's too much risk and changing. So you have to look for struggles and you have to look for struggles that are not being well solved at all now. That's one. There are lots of ways you can see that. You can see it in customers making strange choices to work, make workarounds work on products that aren't specifically or services that aren't specifically designed for whatever the job is, but they're working hard to kind of jerry-rig it, make it work for that product or service. You can see it in people who are choosing to do nothing rather than try to solve their struggle or problem because the existing solutions are just not anywhere close to good enough. It's worth suffering rather than trying something that's not good enough. If you can see the struggle that they're having to make progress, you're in the right camp. You're in fertile territory. The second piece that's really, really important is capturing and understanding. It becomes a sort of box for what's in and what's out in your innovation, the circumstances of that struggle. And that means everything. It's not about the demographics of the person. It's about where they are. What are they trying to achieve? What's the context of that struggle? The difference between probably some of your listeners may know the famous milkshake story where Clayton Christensen figured out that people were buying milkshakes in the morning, not because they like strawberry versus chocolate, but because because they were trying to entertain themselves on a long morning commute. The circumstance of that struggle entertained me on a long morning commute had everything to do with how you would innovate successfully for that job versus different circumstances. If it was dinner time and it was a parent taking their child into a fast food restaurant and wanting to feel like a good parent or say yes to the kid for something, those are different circumstances. You have to capture the circumstances so that your innovation will successfully fuel solving that job in those circumstances. Otherwise, it's just too generic. And people won't see the solution to their problem in it. They'll just see a generic something that may or may not be good enough.
0: So oftentimes the conventional wisdom is to listen to your customers. What are the things you need to hear from them that they're not telling you then?
1: Well, it, that, it is a conventional wisdom and it's very tempting because you want to respond to your customers. But it's as I think Steve job was, Jobs was famous of, of saying, you know, it's not the customer's job to figure out what they need and want. It's my job. And if you had asked Ford what people wanted before he created the Model T, he, they would have said a faster horse. So it is your job to to sort of see beyond what the customers say and not slavishly follow what they tell you they want because what they tell you they want, hypothetically, is not the same as what will actually cause them to buy a product or service. So what you're looking for is not what they say they want, but what they're struggling with. Tell us about a problem. Walk us through how you made that decision. What happened before? What happened after? What triggered your moment of deciding to do that? You want to, follow, you want to sort of tease out from them all of the circumstances of what they were struggling with so that you can start to better frame and shape what is the real job here. It would be very easy to get carried away with what cool things can we offer people that will be hard to say no to, but that's different from how do we get right at the core of solving their job to be done. So you're trying to find the struggle and the circumstances by talking with them, not necessarily about your product, but about them, their lives, what it is they're trying to accomplish.
0: We have talked about the theory, but I think where I'm very curious is some sort of concrete examples. Um, Can you share some concrete examples to how jobs to be done are applied to companies seeking new innovation?
1: Sure. One of my favourite ones, which is in our book, is... OnStar which is the General Motors satellite communication within I don't know if it's global or just largely in the US but you can be in your car and press a button and you can you get a live person who will give you directions or tell you you know where the closest Italian restaurant is from where you're driving it's a very cool service and initially OnStar was created because the technology existed, but it really did as just what they call brochure wear, something that made the car sound cool, but no one really expected it to do much more than be an extra cool feature that we could add. So when it was initially created, the engineers and the people who worked for OnStar just had fun figuring out how many cool things can we make this and it did many things. You know, you could get restaurant recommendations. You could get reviews. You could call and ask a trivia question, and they would answer it. It was cool. But it turns out cool isn't a job to be done. And it was only when they started to realize that the the people who were renewing and the circumstances for those people were that they were they wanted the OnStar service to really give them peace of mind while they were driving or traveling or parents wanting it when their kids were traveling without them, their teenagers were driving, for example that the real job to be done, that that was solving well, was give me peace of mind while I'm driving. So I'm not gonna have to worry about if I have a car accident, will help find me? Will it get to me? Will I be able to, if I get lost in a scary place and I don't know where I am, will you help me get out? All of those things were part of a job to be done that they identified. And once they identified that that was the real core of why people were choosing to continue to get the OnStar subscription service, then they made all of their innovation fit around and work for that job to be done. And so for example engineers are always excited about what they can do to make a product better. They channeled their energy into things like if they could figure out how to get the complex data from a car crash quickly, analyze it and get it to the right emergency services. Is this a serious trauma or not? We can we can save people's lives potentially if we know that they need a trauma unit to come right away versus this is just a fender bender accident. They used all of their creativity and energy but toward the job to be done. And OnStar is a wildly successful product and has continued to be so. I think it's more profitable than GM itself, the division that is OnStar, because they've been so focused around a very clear job to be done.
0: So what are the requirements for organizations to be jobs-focused then?
1: It, well the key thing is that it's it has to be integrated throughout the company there has to be an, an understanding and a, and a description and a definition of what is the job to be done you know in each product or service what what job are we doing for our customers and there can't be you know lots of answers to that question there has to be a consistent answer so you have to make sure that that everyone in the organization understands the job to be done so that their work can be s- filtered through that lens. When a customer calls, if they understand the job to be done, they're going to solve it well. Then if they don't and they use the opportunity to try to sell them something else or change a detail, they, if everyone who plays any role whatsoever in in speaking with or being connected to the customer in any way understands the job to be done, they're going to be consistent. It will be integrated throughout the company. And, and even people who don't connect to the customer, their work should be filtered through the lens of, are we, is what I'm doing now, is this goal, is this strategy consistent with the job to be done? If that doesn't happen, that's when organizations start to get into trouble. They lose connection to and focus to the job to be done, and then they lose their competitive advantage. But stay stays very focused. Everyone understands deeply.
0: When does the jobs to be done theory fails then?
1: Well, there are circumstances that it doesn't apply. If product or service is really a commodity, you know, it's really come down to price, for example, and that's just the reality of it. In, in America, gas stations, for example, probably are truly a commodity. There isn't an emotional or social component of that. I didn't say that before, but I guess that's, that's important in the definition it's progress in particular circumstance but one of the key things to understand is that there are really important emotional and social components of a job to be done that go beyond the function if something like getting gasoline gas station is is just about the transaction it's just about the cheapest price or the convenience that's probably not something a job to be done that's not a job to be done it's just a commodity there are limits there and i th- i think it's very easy for companies and organizations to to get to lose track of the job to be done and just get too clouded. And it's, they're trying to do too many things or add too many bells or whistles and or peel to too many different jobs. And then there's no focus on the job at all. And then it's not effective either. So it doesn't apply always, but it does often apply if there is Emotional, social, and functional dimensions to a job to be done. And there's a struggle that people are looking to make progress with.
0: And that struggle is basically why some products managed to succeed and many others failed in the process.
1: Yes, there are some really cool products that just don't solve a job. That's the problem. The Segway is a good example. The the Segway was such a vaunted, much, you know, much, everyone was very excited about the invention of the Segway. It got so much attention that this was going to, you know, be the next great innovation. And the Segway is cool. It's really cool. And it probably does solve some small jobs, you know, like for us, you know, security in shopping malls, you know, can move around more efficiently. And it's great in tourist cities, things like like that but it do- it didn't ever address a big job to be done that was going to change society in a way it was just a really cool technology and when something's a really cool technology without directly addressing a job it's probably not going to be a long-term success certainly not a big success
0: yeah i think that that's probably true so karen once again thank you so much for coming on the show to explain to my audience about the book competing against luck and the concept of jobs to be done so help my audience how do they find you
1: they can follow the book and, and the authors on twitter the book is at competing versus luck my handle is at care k-a-r dillon, and you can find more information about me in the book and both books actually on my website which is KarenDillon.net.
0: You can find me at bleongcw at com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play in the US market. And of course, tweet to me, recommend us on Overcast or give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store. Once again, Karen, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure talking with you.